0: that in the ancient Greek, the same word, pneuma, meant breath and spirit and wind. The holy breath of God. Our gospel reading today is from the gospel of Luke, the 12th chapter. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain man yielded an abundant harvest he thought to himself what shall i do i have no place to store my grain then he said this is what i'll do i'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and there i will store my surplus grain and i'll say to myself you have plenty of grain laid up for many years take life easy eat and drink and be merry but god said to him you fool This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, I'd like to start this by quoting a prayer I once heard believe that the singer Janis Joplin first gave this prayer. Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? My friends all drive Porsches, I must make amends. I worked hard all my lifetime, no help from my friends. Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz? You ever heard that prayer before? You ever prayed that prayer, sang that prayer? You know, it's a direct request to God from someone who at the time of writing, she had little. She was asking for a a mark of wealth and status. It's from a woman who's asking for a chance to run with her crowd. See, her friends were all driving Porsches, those expensive sports cars, and she'd just like to join them to impress them by showing up with a Mercedes-Benz. It was a bit classier car, but still it was a car that showed that she she was worth just as much as they were. She would show them she was worth just as much as they were and she would show herself that too. For you see, every society has ways to determine who's important and who's not important. Every society has always had ways for people to look at other people and decide if that person needs to be respected or can safely be ignored. In ancient times, purple was a very expensive dye. It was found only by harvesting and processing certain shellfish. And wearing a purple garment meant that you had great wealth, for purple dye cost much money. I see somebody out there wearing some purple today. Hi, Karen. (laughs) Karen, you must have much money or at least you would have had back in the old days. And so when you saw someone wearing purple, wearing a purple garment, you had to show respect because in those days wealth meant power and bodyguards and armies and if you didn't show respect you'd get beat up or worse In fact, this idea that a purple garment meant high status became so important in ancient society that laws were passed which only allowed the emperor and his family to wear purple. Now, in the old days, among certain American Indian tribes, they used a different marker. The possession of an eagle feather or many eagle feathers was looked upon as a mark of high status for gathering eagle feathers meant climbing clear up to eagle nests, which were often high and on the side of cliffs or tall trees. A man who had gathered eagle feathers was brave and courageous. Virtues deemed very important in those societies. In European society of a couple hundred years ago, the fancy wig was seen as a sign of high status. For wigs were very expensive and only the wealthy could have them. And these ideas of status markers, they applied to women as well. 150 years ago, pale skin was seen as high status. It still is in China. For it meant that a woman had not had to work in the sun like ordinary farm girls. Jewelry, you know, has always been seen as a symbol of wealth and status. In the middle of the 20th century, because... Uh, see, we began to change that though from a pale skin to a nice tan, a skinny body. These were seen as the mark of a high status woman because the tan meant that the woman had been able to travel from the smog covered cities in the Northeast to Florida or the Caribbean where the sun was strong. And the skinny body meant that she could afford to smoke cigarettes. We even had a name for the wealthy who traveled the jet set meaning people who had luggage that was a bit more than a feed sack or fancier than a pillowcase, which was what most people used for luggage. The jet set, they traveled by high-speed jet rather than driving a car all the way from New York to Miami. For air travel was expensive and only wealthy, important people could do this. Of course, today we don't get there as quick when we get on the jet as we do by driving because of the the cancellations and other problems with the Jets right now. By the later part of the 20th century, things had changed again. The brand and age of the automobile you owned determined your status. While a cheap Chevette or a Pinto could get you around just as well as a Corvette or Cadillac or this Lincoln Town Car or a newly imported Mercedes, everyone knew the prices of the different types of cars and that told everyone how important you were. Today it's your accessories and your electronics. They tell a lot about you. Who made your handbag? Is it this Louis Vuitton $1,500 handbag? Or do you have a $20 purse? Do you have an iPhone with three cameras or just an Android with a single camera like I do? How about your watch? Is it, is it an Apple watch? Maybe a gold Apple watch? Do you have glasses that are Alexa enabled and able to display Googled answers right in front of your eyes? We still need to know if you're important. Are you wearing a coat and tie? That must mean you're important if you're wearing a coat and tie or a dress. Or can we safely ignore you as we often do when we see someone with dirty jeans and a t-shirt? We still mark status by clothing and accessories. But as with many things, Jesus, Jesus doesn't have much time for earthly displays of wealth and status. He not only didn't care, but he argued against them. He was in Jerusalem teaching one day, and a huge crowd had gathered, many thousands of people. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. The man was searching in his mind for justice, but he was also worried more about money than he was the relationship with his brother. He wanted Jesus and his authority as a public teacher to back him up when he spoke to his brother. But Jesus disappointed the man and maybe even embarrassed him. He answered, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Now, the use of man was not like the 1960s use of man. It was it was actually a mark of respect. He would often say man or woman to somebody he was speaking to. But still, no earthly authority had appointed Jesus to any sort of official capacity. So he asked the question, who appointed me as a judge? And I'm sure that there were people in the crowd who were forced to reconsider where the authority to be a judge actually comes from. Was it the emperor or a king? Or was it from the general acceptance that you had high moral and ethical standing, was this judge a man worthy of respect in that society? Well, Jesus turned to the crowd and said, Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life doesn't consist in an abundance of possessions. It doesn't matter how much stuff you have. Now, this is one of those teachings that we all know, we all talk about, and then conveniently forget most of the time. We emphasize it to our children when they want the newest, fanciest phones, the best clothes, the greatest tennis shoes, especially when we would be stretched financially to afford these status symbols. But you know those people in the advertising industry on Madison Avenue know that we still want to be looked at with admiration because we drive a Lexus or a Mercedes. We want to be known for taking the sharpest photos. We want to impress people with the high-end makeup and the clothing and the accessories. We want our fancy pickups and comfortable cars our expensive furniture and stainless steel appliances mainly to impress ourselves and other people that were important and so we collect things. But Jesus told the crowd this story The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. Now, I want you to notice that as Jesus tells the story, the ground gave the harvest, not the work of the man. In our modern way of speaking, he had been lucky. The weather had been good. The ground had been good. Everything fell into place and he had a sudden windfall harvest that year. Jesus said, The man thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And so he thought for a while and then he decided, this is what I'm gonna do. I'll tear down my barns and I'm gonna build bigger ones and there is where I'll put all my extra grain. And I'll say to myself, you got plenty of grain for laid up for many years. So take it life easy, eat, drink and be merry. To this man who lived in a society where everyone struggled just to produce enough food for their family, maybe just a little bit extra. That grain harvest that year represented a particular type of wealth. It meant lifelong security. A life without that constant struggle. It was a life without work. A longer life with the specter of starvation no longer waiting every harvest. If Jesus were telling the story today, He might tell the story of the man who won the lottery put the money in the bank, retired, build a nice home with all the luxuries, and plan to have a great big party. For money to us today also represents security. It's a house that won't be foreclosed upon. It's a car that always runs, or you can just trade it in if it, if it breaks down, no problem. Plenty of food on the table, air conditioning in the summer and heat in the winter, clothing that's not only comfortable but fashionable, the respect of other people, maybe even servants and bodyguards who would like a gardener, a large television, and a nice phone. It's important to note Jesus is not calling a hard-working man out. He's not calling a man who has worked hard for his grain to be a fool. He's pointing out that the ground gave him the harvest. Just as the man who had asked Jesus to divide the man's inheritance with him was trying to get a hold of riches that he had not worked for, the riches his parents had left to his brother. It's like the situation that the teacher in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, spoke of. For a man, a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. The man who wants the inheritance and the man whose ground gave a great harvest, neither actually worked hard for the money they were greedy for. They just wanted a gift. Of course, you know the root of insecurity And the need for wealth is a fear that we will not be able to have food or shelter or any other good thing. And this ultimately leads to a pattern that leads us to become homeless and skinny and starve and die. That's the root of our need for wealth. For we build our barns of grain and our retirement accounts so that we can live long. But is our life dependent upon our wealth? or is it depends on something else. Jesus continues his story about the wealthy man, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? The big new barns full of grain would go to family members who had not worked for the wealth. Just as the man who had not worked for the wealth, the ground, maybe here we should read God, had given him. For God ultimately decides when we die in this life, and our relationship with God decides whether we survive to an eternal life, and to a large extent God decides how money comes into us. Jesus gives the final moral of the story. This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Once again, as he always does to us. Jesus tells us, what he tells us goes against the received wisdom of the world around us. We've all watched countless commercials about saving for retirement, how if we put money away, someday we can travel with the beautiful people of the jet set to the warm, sunny beaches of the world to have a yacht and ride on that yacht. If we'll simply invest our money in a good retirement account, One day we'll be able to eat at nice restaurants. Our husbands will be athletic and handsome. Our beautiful wives will be playing tennis in sundresses at age uh, age 75. And we'll be smiling at each other with a glass of red wine while the impeccably dressed waiter brings us lobster. That's what's going to happen, right? At least that's what the commercials tell us. And according to those commercials, the good life is going to be here if only we will store up our treasures for ourselves with the bankers and the insurance companies, which are the modern barns. But the teacher of the book of Ecclesiastes also has has a different outlook on this. The tradition of the ancient Jewish rabbis is that the teacher who wrote this was King Solomon, King David's son who had... He had the good life. He had hundreds of wives, was more wealthy and wise than anyone else. He had a gold-plated house. He wrote, What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless." According to Solomon, everything is meaningless because everybody dies. That's what Solomon thought. But then again, Solomon lived before Jesus came to earth. Solomon saw only death in his future. The Apostle Paul, on the other hand, he had the benefit of having been directly given a difficult task by Jesus. The task was to bring the word of God's love, the story of how Jesus had died for us on the cross and been raised to a new life and how followers of Jesus were promised a new eternal life. Paul was to bring this good news to as many of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, as possible. And Paul worked at this until the day he died and he joined Jesus. Paul knew what Jesus meant to be rich toward God and Paul told us. He says this, speaking to people who have believed in Jesus and been baptized. I hope you've believed in Jesus and been baptized if you haven't see me. Paul says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you'll also appear with Him in glory. Paul then gives us the details of how to be rich toward God. To be rich toward God means first getting our own houses in order, putting away our old bad habits, the habits that we hate in other people. Here's a good red flag for you. If something someone else does bothers you, If it makes you think less of them, then immediately ask yourself, do I also do that? What does it make people think of me? Well, Paul tells us, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, he says, the wrath of God is coming. Then he tells us, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. Yes, the world is like that. That's what they believe. But now you must also rid yourselves of all these things, anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and you've put on a new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of your creator. When we believe and are baptized, it's like we take off an old self and we put on a new self. And it's time to follow what the new self would have. We are to imitate Christ. Paul says we also that we can't classify people into various identity groups. We're to only see Christ in all people. Paul says, here there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all we look around and all we should see is christ in people so how else can we become rich toward god well the obvious answer from jesus's parable is not to worry about saving our money away for the future but jesus immediately after this tells us the stories of how god feeds the ravens even though they don't have a barn or work on work on a farm he tells us how beautiful the flowers are, how we shouldn't worry about our food or our clothing if we have faith. For your Father knows that you need them, but seek His kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. So let's consider accomplishing God's mission, bringing His kingdom on earth as much as we can. Jesus told us about this in Matthew 28, which is on your handout. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Many of you are already deeply involved in this mission. Some of you have dipped your toes in the water. But Jesus asks us to devote our lives to the mission. It's not a mission just for pastors or the members of an outreach committee or the children's ministry. It's a mission given to all. Because in the first line of this passage, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Now, do you believe that? If you believe that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus, then the rest of the passage is aimed at you, the disciples of Jesus. Therefore, go and make disciples. Now, how do we do this? We've got five ways. First of all, we pray. Now, grab your hand out. We pray. We ask for God's power, the love of Jesus, and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to come into each of us daily so that we can do God's will. So, if you'll pray with me now. Father God, please send your power, the love of Jesus, and the wisdom of the holy spirit into me that i may do your will. we pray this in the name of jesus. so we pray. we pray a lot. we pray pray persistently. secondly, we bring our presence We show up almost every week to our Sunday worship services, our Sunday school classes, our midweek classes that we may understand more and more about God's character, what Jesus has commanded, and how to explain the good news to people. And we recognize that other people come to church not just for the sermon or the music, but because they need to speak to each of us or feel our presence. We may not realize how important we are to others, but our presence is very important to the Christians around us. Look around the room. There's somebody that you come to see, and you're really happy to see them every week. Other people are looking at you. Third, we bring our gifts both our gifts of treasure and our spiritual gifts, money and the things that God has enabled us to do. We bring that together with gifts from others, which will make us the entire body of Christ, powerful and wise and loving, able to accomplish great things working together. You remember the Power Rangers? Most of you had kids who wanted Power Ranger things. You remember, they're individually fairly strong, but you put them together and suddenly they're super powerful. Well we're the same way. Individually Christians are strong but the body of Christ when it comes together is much stronger because we come together to accomplish good and we fight evil. It's together with our individual gifts of treasure and our spiritual gifts. Fourth, we bring our service to each other and to God. Christianity is not a spectator sport. It's not held at Mountaineer Field. But we each have a position on the field. And every position is important from the quarterback to the blocking tackle to the water boy and to the trainer. You may not know what your service can be. You may directly participate in the weekly service like people who come up here. But you may also call people from your home during the week and check on them. You might pray for dozens of people, or you might give much money. You may fold bulletins, or you may simply tell one person a day how much you enjoy this church. You may repair the building or clean the windows. Each position is important in the body of Christ. Just find a place to serve. Fifth, after praying and presence, our gifts and our service, We bring our witness to each other and to the world around us. We speak of God's blessings and the love of Christ. We tell people how things were going so wrong, but a lesson learned in church turned that around. We speak of the time we prayed and Jesus gave us the extra time we needed or helped us on the test or sent us a phone call just when we needed it. We give credit to the God who has supported us over the years, even for the smallest things, the job referral, the recipe for chicken from our Christian friend, the life hack that saves time that we got talking in the parking lot at church. We speak of the God we worship and how Jesus has made a difference in our lives. And because of that, slowly, slowly, we make little changes to the world around us, which changes it from an unhealthy place where there's dying people all over the place to a wonderful place in which we joyously live. And this comes because God loves us to praise Him to others in this world through our witness. And so do not store things up for yourselves in barns or retirement accounts, but become rich toward God through prayer and presence, your gifts, your service, and your witness. So join us up up here at the altar and make a commitment to both God and yourself to become rich toward God. Sharing prayer and presence and gifts and service and witness. Or maybe you need to come forward today to pray for another's health or for someone who needs to know God's love. There's almost always a reason to come forward in prayer.